Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, the director of the Center for Disease Control says that the outbreak of the coronavirus could be with us beyond this season and into next year. Uh, Here is what the World uh, Health Organization had to say today in uh, the ways of an update. I'm glad to say that countries around the world are in a better state of preparedness for COVID-19 than they were just a week ago. And WHO's efforts to help countries boost lab capacity continue. As you know, China has changed the way it reports data from Hubei province. Uh, There are now a total of 47,500 laboratory confirmed cases in China and 16,427 cases that have been clinically confirmed in Hubei province, making it more than 63,000 in total. There have been 1,381 deaths in China, including 100 reported today. Outside China, there have been 505 cases in 24 countries and two deaths. All right, to talk more about all of this, Dr. Rodney Rode is with us, Professor and Chair, Clinical Laboratory Science Program at the College of Health Professions, Texas State University, and is with us now. Rodney, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks so much, Scott. It's great to be on your show. How much uh, play is this getting in the United States? How much is America following all this? Oh, we're definitely on top of it. I mean, as soon as that first case showed up in Seattle, Washington, a couple of weeks ago or so now, it you know, it kind of started lighting up. And then I'm here in Texas. And as you know, there was a case confirmed yesterday in San Antonio, which is about about 45 miles south of where my university is. So it's definitely being covered. I think I think we're doing a really good job uh, with respect to kind of making sure people don't panic and are following reputable sources and staying on top of the, the current information. Uh, speaking of information, we had reports uh, last week that uh, alluded that the virus was slowing down a little bit in China. Now we're hearing that there's uh, another sharp rise. Uh, do you think this virus is close to its peak? You know, it's really difficult to predict. I always tell, I'm a virologist, so I always tell anyone that I'm talking to that viruses really have a mind of their own in a sense that you just don't know. But I do think we're getting close to that peak. I'm just not sure we're there yet. It's certainly um, the, the rise in cases. Uh, the real concern there is that people need to understand that China changed their case definition yesterday. So what happened, we saw a rise of about 15,000 cases overnight. And right. that's really not sure because what they did is they they changed their definition to include clinically diagnosed cases which is different than only including laboratory-confirmed cases. So basically what we're doing and what they're doing is casting a wider net. In other words, they're looking at cases now. They're calling them cases of people that might have, you know, upper respiratory, sore throat, sneezing, coughing, things like that, that that really could be anything. It could be flu. It could be a common cold. It could be RSV. It could be a number of agents. But they're going to go ahead and cast that wide net just to kind of make sure they're not missing cases. Uh, from what we know of this virus, not as deadly as SARS, but certainly has a, 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 an ability to spread very, very quickly. What concerns you about this virus? I, I'm not massively concerned about it. I am concerned enough to know that it could be very dangerous as we watch it. And this is why, Scott, it's it's not 
right now predicted to have as high of a case fatality rate as SARS. SARS had about a 10% case fatality rate. A cousin of that virus, MERS, had about a 30% a case fatality rate. Right now, this one in in the world, it's stabilizing around 1% to 2%, uh, especially outside of China. You're kind of in that even less than 1%. Inside of China, it's a little higher, obviously. But what makes it, I think, people under not understand what's going on is that when you have even a 0.5 to you know 2% case fatality rate, but it's infecting millions and millions and millions of people, well, then that number rises. So, again, it's kind of a play on understanding what the denominator and the numerator is in those calculations. But having said all that, it is definitely a virus that we want to keep our eyes on. It's a brand-new novel virus, and so we're always concerned when something jumps out of of an animal reservoir like this one has done and enters the human population. Uh, has What about China's ability to contain this? Uh, are they doing a good job? Could they be I, doing more, uh, especially with mass uh, quarantines that they've got going on? Yeah, I, I think I actually applaud what's going on. I mean, certainly it's difficult to know everything that's going on inside of, yeah. of the epicenter there, but with the numbers uh, we are watching and other experts are watching it, we have not seen, for instance, the healthcare personnel collapse. We haven't seen ERs turning away uh, patients. These are all indicators that are kind of outside of the headlines. These are things we watch. Can the infrastructure of the hospital healthcare centers there in, in Hubei province handle it? So far, uh, all indicators are that they are handling it. And I, I really applaud their resiliency and their perseverance because – they're in it. They're in the middle of something that's really kind of rapidly growing and evolving. And so far, they seem to be handling that. Do you just let something like this run its course like any flu? You know, that that's a great question. I think you're going to get different answers. Uh, the U.S., you know, has kind of put on this um, a level four travel restriction. They're quarantining people coming back and things like that. Some would argue that travel restrictions and bans don't do ultimately the greatest good because you may actually close off uh, supply routes for supplies and personnel and the economy might suffer and things like that. But I think the U.S.'s stance, and this is what Dr. Redfield from the CDC was talking about yesterday, is that really what we're trying to do here in the U.S. anyway is to slow it down. So that's why they're isolating cases and quarantining uh, some of the returning visitors from China in that area putting them in a couple of weeks quarantine to kind of make sure they're not spreading it to their family and other members, basically to try and give the country time to adapt and to try to come up with uh, antivirals and maybe a possible vaccine. So really just buying time. Ultimately, Scott, as a virologist and a microbiologist, I can tell you mankind rarely beats viral outbreaks. I mean, it will Mm. spread through the population it doesn't care what you look like. It doesn't care where you live. It doesn't care how much money you make. It doesn't care what politics you care about. It will find a way through the population. And and like most coronaviruses, I mean, many of them are like common colds. It'll probably settle into a kind of a community-associated type of infection. And we, you know, and we may or may not be even talking about it like we are today in a year from now. It'll just kind of depend on how... Um, how much it takes root in the population and how much that case fatality rate rises or lowers over the next year or so. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. So when, and, and obviously you can't predict this, but when do you see this uh, peaking or, or coming to an end? I mean, if most people have a flu virus or what have you, a couple of weeks, you're pretty much over this. Uh, I, I guess right. once you stop the spread of it, can you then can you then s- sort of pre- predict a, an end for this? I, you know, there's all kinds of models, and there's a lot of smart people out there looking at models that, that say we're getting close to the peak or we haven't quite reached it. What's difficult is that it may, it may reach its peak, and it likely will reach its peak in China and in those surrounding regions first because it's burning through the population, and the human population yeah. will begin to create immune responses to that. But if it enters, for instance, Canada – or the United States in the next, you know, it's already here, obviously. We have a few isolated cases. Mm-hmm. But if that does start spreading to kind of a, think like throwing a rock in a, in a pond or a lake and those ripples start occurring, that, that may be a different rate or a different rise here. The U.S. may see a later a peak. It might be in mid, you know, mid-spring or later spring. Or, mm-hmm. you know, we'll, we'll see if it goes into the summer. Many of these viruses tend to die down. It becomes more seasonal like the flu. But that's not a guarantee. Um, you know, you just it's hard to predict how the virus might mutate or change. Uh, Dr. Rodney Rode is with us from Texas State University. Uh, Rodney, what what can China do to stop? I mean, after this is contained and they, they finally get through all of this, what can they do to stop this from happening again? Because we saw this with SARS, uh, right. you know, a few years ago. Uh, we're now seeing it again. Again, not as deadly a, a virus, it seems, as SARS, but certainly creating an awful lot of chaos. Um, Absolutely. What, how, can, how do they prevent this? Well, again, I'm going to give a caveat that it's, it is pretty difficult to stop a virus from doing what it wants to do. However, one of the main concerns, I'm glad you asked this question. I talk about this some from my, my uh, zoonotic public health days. So one of the things we know that happens in those regions, probably more so than in the U.S. or Canada or other types of countries, is that they have a very relaxed regulatory system around live animal markets. Mm-hmm. And so there is a definite, I think, need that China and other countries like that need to really examine closely and maybe putting in government policies and regulations on the, the ability to have, I mean, all sorts of animals, you know, Scott, all sorts of things like bats and, and reptiles and amphibians and along with the other kind of domestic and livestock animals. So th- that's, that's really known in the world of virology and microbiology, a very common thing. Most microbes coexist with animals, humans, and then short-term in the environment. So it's kind of a a three-legged stool there. And if you kind of limit that animal-human interaction, then you're going to start helping uh, lower and reduce the number of those pathogens in the presence of people. It's really really difficult because we're still going to have some interaction that you can't police, like people and livestock and farming and things like that. But but wild animal reservoirs are a little tricky and a little scary to me to be interacting so much with. You may not know if a person's immunocompromised and they're handling you know, a, a monkey or something like that. So you just don't know it can jump into a person and then adapt and start jumping through families and, and so on and so forth. Are you surprised how this has debilitated China? Are you surprised how it has spread? I mean, as you watch this all unfold, I mean, obviously you're an expert in all of this. What stands out uh, from uh, for this virus for you? You know, I, I think anytime you deal with a respiratory 
type of transmitted virus or even other other microbe like a bacterium, it's going to be a much more rapid disseminated event. It, it's it's surprising, but not overly surprising to me. I've been doing this for about 25 years now, and so I've I go back all the way to when West Nile virus entered the United States and burned across the country in about three years. It's now endemic in the U.S. I've been through multiple, you know, flu seasons, even including kind of unique flus like avian flu and swine flu and SARS when it burned through and, and even anthrax after the 9-11 events when that was kind of going on. So I've been through this and many of us have that are following it. So we're trying to help people to understand it and to follow reputable sources and to maintain perspective, which is, you know, making sure your vaccines are up to date, making sure you are vigilant with hand hygiene, avoiding sick people, and kind of paying attention to the travel restrictions and just common sense of how you kind of handle your health. But, you know, I I do not um, wish this upon any country or government. I mean, mm-hmm. what they're dealing with in that epicenter right now is probably somewhat of a panic situation among the citizens. So in my opinion, and and again, I think most people would say this, being transparent, being open, asking for help. I know CDC has offered their help to the government in that area, and they've yet to accept that. Hopefully that occurs so that there's more openness and that we, and really what I appreciate happening right now, Robert or Scott, is that it's basically become a very good case study in real time. I Mm. mean, I'm telling people what's the the good side of something like this occurring, if it maintains low death rates and things like that, is that we are learning globally how to deal with something in real time and with air travel now that can get you to, you know, London from Austin, Texas in about five hours. So these are all really good lessons and hopefully we learn them and don't don't fail to learn them. When do you think life will get back to normal in China? I mean, this has just ravaged this country and literally yeah, brought, brought I, it to a halt. Hard. Yeah, really hard to say, but I would hope that in the next several months, you know, as we enter summer, that they it's going to depend on if they start accepting resources and help from outside. They certainly can use it, both in personnel. Think about, so I'm a, I'm a medical laboratory professional who has worked in public health and hospital settings during these events, and you get exhausted. And, and if you have healthcare professionals getting mm. sick, they're hard to replace. You can't replace that type of expertise. So you can't just take a, you know, you can't take a nurse and train them to be a physician or, or to be a medical laboratory professional. So yeah. it, it taxes the system on human resources. So it'll depend on if they start asking for help and, and, and getting that help. And hopefully the virus will start calming down some once it gets uh, kind of hit with some immune uh, hurdles from the human population and hopefully some antiviral and maybe a vaccine prep as we enter the, the next year. Does the change in season help or, or hurt this? Is it help, a hindrance? Certain viruses certainly, uh, as you get to warmer temperatures, uh, are not as active. It just kind of depends, Scott. Uh, something like a mosquito-borne tropical disease can can really cook in the summer and get really reproductive and get going. Other seasonal things like flu and um, RSV and things like that tend to be more active in the winter. Um, and then, then you have all the circumstances of if it is active in the winter, the, one of the compounding factors is everybody's inside. And so if you're pushing mass numbers of people indoors and there's you know a, a spreader or a viral shedder within that type of situation, then you can really ramp up the amplification of the virus. 
Uh, good old washing of the hands, the best thing you can do for this sort of thing to, 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 to keep it at bay? Absolutely. I, mean, I can't tell you how important it is to, to do that. And even other little quirky things that I talk with um, with some of my colleagues and students and things like that is that, you know, your hands can really be agents of death in healthcare. I mean, and that's, <laughs> that's not putting it lightly. Yeah. I mean, truly, it, yeah. even when they're talking about this disease, any disease, it's your hands is the primary problem because we all touch, you know, just hundreds and hundreds of high-touch surfaces in any given day. And if you're in healthcare or if you're in a school or in a gym or a recreational place where there's hundreds, if not thousands of people coming through there, you can kind of do the math. It's, it's kind of unpredictable. So you want to wash your hands often and even using your hands smartly. So I often tell people, you know, use your knuckle. Use your knuckle yeah. to punch the elevator button. Hmm. Fist, fist bump instead of shake hands. You know, there's all kinds of ways to kind of think about avoiding touching high surfaces with your hands. But certainly you want to make sure you are washing often and using that hand hygiene and then just trying to avoid those that look sick or, or you know, or ill. Dr. Rodney Rode has been with us, professor and chair, clinical laboratory science program at the College of Health Professions, Texas State University. Rodney, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. I really appreciate the opportunity to educate the public. You take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.